You're listening to The Bookshelf on RN Summer. I'm Kate Evans and Cassie McCullough. Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year to you too, Kate. It's 2020. Time for a fresh start and some fresh books. But does it matter that they were released at the end of last year? Because we've got Anna Crean's new one there, and that's Act of Grace, Political Fiction, and a whole collection of book recommendations from her. But there's something about this time of year that screams crime fiction to me, Kate. That's what I really like to read over summer. So we have crime writer Sarah Bailey on the show a bit later, as well as Adelaide writer Peter Goldsworthy, who doesn't always write crime, but he has this time. Do you remember we talked about Minotaur, Cassie? Minotaur. Minotaur, sorry. Why don't we start with Peter Goldsworthy then? He wrote Honk If You Are Jesus, Maestro, but his latest book, Minotaur, is set in Adelaide with a blind policeman as its hero. We reviewed the book here on the bookshelf, but I also got to speak to him on stage at the Bad Sydney Crime Festival, so I thought we should hear part of that discussion. Cassie, shall we? Well, why not, Kate? But just a warning, there is some strong language ahead. Peter, hello. Hello, Kate. Do you say Minotaur or Minotaur? Well, I say Minotaur, and it's, that's sort of an English tradition, I think. The, in Americans, it's um, Minotaur, but in fact, in the, just to be really pretentious, in the Greek, uh, it was King Minos, um, of course, in ancient Crete, and so I suppose Minotaur, Minotaur might be closer to some kind of tra- proper transcription, but anyway, I'm going to stick with Minotaur. Well, before we step into the, the present and the, the creature trapped perhaps in a labyrinth. Can you explain the story of the Minotaur? Um, we, we assume, well, I, I suppose my generation assumes everyone's sort of grown up knowing all the, all the mythic stories. Uh, but anyway, basically the, the, the Minotaur, well, you know the story of Theseus and Ariadne, who was the daughter of King Minos of Crete. And uh, Theseus, a Greek hero, arrived from whichever town he came from. I think it was Thebes. and. Uh, there was a sacrifice each year of, from the Greek city-states to the, mon- the monster that lived in the labyrinth, and uh, uh, he was one of them, and he, sl- he finally slew the Minotaur. That's probably all we need to... But the, the Minotaur, half, half man, half bull, uh, tr- in this labyrinth, maybe not blind, but um, it, there are some Picasso drawings called the Blind Minotaur, and um, I suppose blind... In, in many other senses. I mean, one of the things that in, in this novel I wanted to use blindness as an ongoing metaphor on, on many levels. Of, but uh, we, I'm getting off piece here with that, that, that tr- <laughs> your question already, Kate. You better watch me. <laughs> well, let's talk then about Detective Sergeant Rick Zadow. So he, in a way, is your minotaur. But what defines him? Is it the maze or the labyrinth that surrounds him or that half-man, half-monster aspect? What makes him your minotaur? Well, I think he's certainly trapped in the, the, the labyrinths of his own blindness, but uh, there are other um, labyrinths I get, that are going to be negotiated, and perhaps uh, his adversary is also maybe something of a, of a minotaur. But he's also been lured into, without giving too much away, I suppose. Well, that's probably impossible in this days of, uh, you know, everything's online and plot summaries and whatever, people's responses, but... Um, He's trying to lure his uh, his villain. Actually, just get back to the Greek again. I was thinking, um, or different kind of modern Greek. There's a great poem by uh, 
Sipi Kavafi, um, the, which I read when I was about 17, 18. I didn't understand it at the time, as you don't, but you, we sort of understand it at an unconscious level. That's Waiting for the Barbarians, a very famous poem. I don't know if uh, people know it. But anyway, the Romans are sitting around. I'll get to the point of this in a minute. Uh, what, tw f 25 seconds. Um, oh, no, a minute. <laughs> a minute. <laughs> um, the Romans are sitting around in the, you know, the, the forum or, or the Senate because the barbarians are due to arrive and they're all very anxious and, and agitated. And the poem goes on. The, the final couple of lines, which I've never forgotten, um, uh, but wait, the news has arrived from the frontier. The barbarians have been defeated. What is to become of us now? Now there are no more barbarians. And I think, you know, to me, uh, I've always been fascinated by that. The, the, the things that, the obsessions we form that give our lives meaning or purpose, whether you know, they're, they're good obsessions or, or bad ones, like revenge, for instance, or even, you know, and I see it in medical practice, uh, people's illnesses become central to their lives, you know, understandably, uh, but they can, they can overtake everything else in their lives and overwhelm them. And I think I wanted to explore that level of um, that thirst for revenge or, and, and anger and what you do with your anger as well. These things that power my detective. And part of the blindness, I think, uh, certainly the blindness metaphor is not just his literal blindness, but his metaphoric blindness on many, many levels, and certainly his blindness to his own failings and, and trying to slowly regain some sight uh, as the novel um, goes on. Is that still evading the question? I'm not sure. If people haven't read this book yet, so this Detective Sergeant Rick Zadow is blind, and we won't yet talk about how that happened, but I'm curious about how you wrote your way into the experience of a person who is blind, how you imagined or researched your way into that. Well, I have patients who are blind, and one in particular, though, who helped me a lot with this, and uh, he oh, he's someone I admire enormously. Um, he Well, he lost his sight because of diabetes, but he was also had a kidney transplant, he's lost a leg. People said he would never walk again after he lost the leg, or certainly would never tap, or be able to be uh, to control a dog. And I, I said to him recently, um, and I, this is stoicism, his good humour, and I've been sending him drafts for a long time. I've been writing this for eight or nine years. And um, I said to him recently, he came to the launch in Adelaide, uh, I said, when was it we first started, you first taught me to tap? I mean, he gave me a stick and we'd go around tapping. And he said, well, because his, 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 his new dog, he's just got a new dog uh, called Ripley. And, uh, <laughs> but I was, I was remembering, uh, I said, I think your dog back then was Oriole. And he said, yes, and since Oriole I've had Isla, uh, another dog. And I, I said, well, I said, I guess it's a three dog novel. I mean, it's been going on. And so it was, ten, it was eight or nine years ago. And, uh, so he's been, in, and I've sent him drafts, um, which he reads with, the, with, well back then, it was pre-Siri, and uh, he had a little device called, a, called Trekker, and I, I, in the early drafts, it was just a very mechanical GPS navigator. But I gave um, Trekker sort of more advanced powers as I wrote the drafts, so I kind of think I invented Siri. And, uh, <laughs> and then when Siri came along, I thought, I've got to get this novel finished, uh, because the technology is sort of moving more quickly than, than I can f dream it up. Uh, I mean, I said to Lisa, my wife, about five years, four or five years ago, I gave it away several times. I said, look, I said, I've wasted five years of my life on this. And she said, oh, don't, be his, you know, don't be a drama queen. Go and see when you wrote the first draft. And I came back and said, well, okay, I've wasted three. And, uh, but um, it's, so I've, 
I had to take it. I became frustrated with it. Anyway, you don't want to hear the problems of, of writers exaggerating their periods of block or um, frustration or depression, but um, it has been an on-off experience, yeah. And, but finally, things come together, as, which is wonderful when it happens. And if, there are many ingredients that I needed, uh, and they sort of, if you wait long enough, they do bob up. And, and the, the jigsaw, the little piece that you can, and it's a slow process, but you get there and it's fantastic when it happens, but on the way, there's a lot of self-loathing. <laughs> <laughs> and if people are wondering about the context there, I mentioned that Peter is a, a novelist, a poet, a librettist, but he's also a medical doctor too. But you describe the house that Zadow has as both a house and a second skin. I'm really, because it's a smart house. So can you describe how this house works? Well, I mean, the first, I guess the first thing is everything's voice activated, just about everything. Um, and uh, so he can control it uh, with voice commands uh, through, more uh, through Siri, um, in his case. Um, but though a friend, one of the uh, ex-cops who's been helping with it said, could we, t <laughs> we I've been talking about a sequel, and uh, I mean I don't do sequels, but uh, everyone else has been talking about a sequel. And he's he keeps sending me little uh, texts. And he said, "Why doesn't he divorce Siri and take up with uh, was it Alexi?" The, uh, <laughs> and, and, <you> know, <laughs> because because Siri is his, his between Siri and his dog Scout, and his, his you know his wife's left him, and uh, deservedly, <laughs> uh, I think. But um, he's he's sort of got this these these two female companions uh, that sustain him minimally, barely. And uh, so that's, once again, I'm sort of starting to talk about other things, I guess, Kate. I'd better s slow down and... Uh, oh, no, it's all, it's all part of this... Coffee-fueled Sunday morning. <laughs> this extraordinary world that's been created. But given that we are here at a crime festival, we, we need to talk about the way in which it fits in with things that crime writing does. And one of the things that's often said about crime writing, particularly urban crime, is that it maps and remaps cities because detectives travel through all areas of the city, they travel through different classes, you know, they walk the main streets. One of the things I found really interesting about Minotaur is the way that by having a blind character, he maps the streets in a different way, and they're the streets of Adelaide, using sound, using different types of awareness. So what did it mean for you as a writer to think about the city and how he moved through it? Well, look, it was, well that part was one of the fun parts of writing it, always, I think, just walking along, say, Guja Street or Hindley Street and, and listening and, and, and smelling, uh, particularly the big the cafe strips like in Chinatown in Adelaide. Um, and so that was immense fun. And then, you know, listening to stuff and, uh, and, and you know, talking to Daniel, my blind patient, about he'd always give, it, give a fascinating perspective on things that you wouldn't, you know, you, ca you can't dream up. Um, yeah, so there's always, there's always, and there's a lot of, there's so much of, of his, he'd send me notes and uh, sometimes, and they'd be very useful often. So, I mean, I did look at, I wrote a novel, I don't know, 20 years ago, uh, Wish which uh, I like to call it, I, I call it, kind of call it, my, call it my gorilla fucking novel. It's sort of Romeo and Juliet for different species, but it's partly written in sign language. And in that, in that novel, I certainly tried to inhabit the, the deaf world and certainly the, uh, the world of sign. I learned sign to write that. And the novels, I like to say it's the first novel in the history of literature that's partly written in sign. 
So I've, I guess I've been interested in what happens with the loss of, uh, you know, loss of a sense, and uh, and one of the things in that that was also about ten years ago, I'm an ambassador for an organisation in Adelaide called Sight for All, which I suppose you could call Adelaide's Fred Hollows. These are ophthalmologists who work pro bono around the world, particularly in Southeast Asia and in uh, indigenous communities, and. Um, at one of their events ten years ago, they asked me to write a poem um, as a part of you know the fundraising. I don't, you know, you're not going to raise a lot of funds <laughs> using poets, I think. But um, but I, I just wrote a piece that incorp just was just I just listed all those visual metaphors we use without even realising they're part of the structure of language, and um, that we inhabit even even the the blind have to inhabit this world, uh, this linguistic world of. Um, which is based on, you know, it, and we don't notice them because we're like the fish, we, they're like the sea we swim in. And so I just constructed that. And that also, I guess, started off my interest in, uh, and, and Daniel would often point them out to me, um, that, uh, and, and I've used a lot of those in the book too. Uh, well, let's hear some of those. Um, so it's Zadao. There's this incredible sensory description of the city and the way that he moves through it. So do you want to give us a reading? Sh sure. Well, perhaps I'll just read a little bit here near the beginning where we're introducing, um, well, introducing the characters have already been introduced, but we're introducing, I guess, Siri. He's just left his, uh, his wife's house. He doesn't know where the house is still, and he's tapped out of it. He got, he, we don't need to know that he, but he got there in a um, more semi-conscious state and they've had an argument and he's tapped out of this house. Sounds, the hard acoustic of the house behind me, a softer world ahead, echo free and already fuzzy round the edge edges with bee buzz. Smells, the cloying sweetness of jasmine to the left, a faint savoury rock pool stink. Prawn heads in a garbage can, somewhere to the right. She didn't eat seafood, had she been serving aphrodisiacs to her new boyfriend. Such was my state of mind, I would have gone through a garbage giving it, given a pair of working eyes. Instead, I tapped a low picket front fence, found the gate, fingered the latch, and walked through into the street. Which street? Willow had kept her address secret all these months. I sniffed for more clues. Not a main road after all, it seemed. No trace of diesel in the after-trail of jasmine, no exhaust fumes of any kind. Time to swallow my pride and ask for help. I turned my mouth to my collar microphone. Current location, Siri. No answer. The sisterhood sticking together? The truth was less dramatic. She was powered down. I tugged her from the belt holster, thumbprinted the on button, reholstered her and repeated the question. 246A Wakefield Street came the familiar soothing contralto, Adelaide. So much for sisterhood solidarity, I said. I'm not sure I understand, Richard. <laughs> Don't even try, I need you in my corner. Drop pin, current location. Pin dropped, name pin. Gotcha, I said, and tapped away along the footpath, still barefoot but so angrily pleased with myself I hardly noticed. Shay gotcha. Show gotcha may be beyond my abilities at the moment, Richard. I had to laugh. It's good to hear your voice, I said, not for the first time. Flatterer, she said, also not for the first time. In fact, I was mostly flattering myself. I chose hers from a range of voices, male and female. High-pitched voices carry further, I told myself at the time, but maybe I just craved extra female company. We've lived in each other's pockets ever since, on her side, literally. Each time we step out the door, it's a kind of date. At least you've stuck by me, I told my date. Your satisfaction is all the thanks I need, Richard. 
I managed another gruff laugh. If less at her nonsense at mine, I might as well have taken comfort from a talking parrot on my shoulder. Plenty of candidates for the job were feeding in the trees above me, lorikeets hinged squeaking at each other as I tapped closer, cockatoos squawking from higher branches further off. A waspy scooter engine burst into life behind me, revved once, then buzzed my way. I quickened my pace, but there was no escape. Come down off your high horse, big nose, Willow said, drawing a breast, and jump on mine, please. At the risk of repeating myself, fuck off. I'll pretend I didn't hear that, Richard, Siri whispered in my ear, supportively. <laughs> At least take your boots, you stubborn git, from Willow. You can chuck them over the nearest power line, I said, for all I care. The thought amused me despite myself, a little reminder dangling in her face each time she stepped out her unlisted front door. I would have done it myself if it wouldn't have taken me all day. So that's just a little introduction to the relationship with Siri. So drop pin Siri. Did you imagine her as a discreet character in the novel as you wrote it? He imagines her, obviously, you know, listening to the female voice in his loneliness, so he has all kinds of imaginings about her and uh, asks her the kind of questions, I guess, uh, that I asked Siri. Um, I mean, I invented some of Siri's answers, but uh, there's genuine comedy to be found in uh, accidental comedy initially, but they're starting to program in genuine jokes now for Siri. Um, and uh, so at the beginning, it was sort of fun to invent uh, stuff for Siri. I'm not sure what Apple would make of that, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, didn't, didn't worry the publishers. So. <laughs> well, she becomes this digital offsider, and offsiders are so important in crime novels. But I think technology is both changing crime fiction, and if you're not careful, it can ruin it, because you either have to have a, a hacker who can solve everything in miraculous ways, or every crime novel needs to be set before mobile phones, because it can ruin so many plot points. But it seems to me you've done something different again by incorporating the technology, his relationship with it, and this different sense of moving through the, the city. It, it, and the chronology of it did become a problem for me um, because, as I alluded to it before, the, the technology is evolving so quickly that if you're not careful, it's gone past you and, and, and you're rendered obsolescent already. I was trying to stay one step ahead, and certainly with the smart house, it still seems to be in some ways ahead of what's in common use, even for the blind. Um, and the blind are very much across you know, what's, what's evolving, obviously, for obvious reasons. And uh, so, but also the age, I, I know people say, how old is this, is Rick Zadow? And I know how old he was nine years ago when I started, but I decided just to keep him the same, I mean, he's still the same age, basically. Because <laughs> um, he needs to be some sort of, but I've left it a little bit indeterminate because in some ways he's straddling different worlds, so he's in, in some kind of middle-aged um, in terms of the changing, evolving world, um, in which not just in terms of technology, but you know, relationships between men and women, uh, in terms of the police, the changes in the police force itself, yeah. Peter Goldsworthy on stage at the oddly named Bad Sydney Crime Festival because, by all accounts, it's really quite good. And he was speaking with Kate for the bookshelf. His book is Minotaur. Do we have more crime novels, Kate? 
We do, with the help of crime writer Sarah Bailey. She wrote Into the Night, The Dark Lake and Where the Dead Go. So I asked her for, you guessed it, Me, Myself and I Reflections. Sarah Bailey, thank you so much for joining us on The Bookshelf. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Now, you've just published the third in your series about a woman called Gemma Woodstock. How would you describe Gemma? I would describe Gemma as frustrating. Um, that's certainly how lots of people describe her to me. Um, but I also find her interesting. I, I especially enjoy writing in Gemma's voice. Um, I think she's feisty. I think she's good at her job and perhaps a little bit less good at her personal life. So she's a, a cop. By this latest book, Where the Dead Go, her ex-partner has recently died, the father of her son, Ben. So mm-hmm. she's dealing with grief and trauma. And in a way, she's avoiding dealing with her new relationship. She's escaping to a small town. And I wonder if this is part of a, a fine tradition of damaged cops. I think so. Um, I feel like a lot of people that are drawn to that profession do sometimes carry a little bit of baggage of their own, particularly detectives. Um, and I think that um, that's obviously fairly stereotypical. I'm sure not all detectives um, have, have trauma, but I do feel like to sort of um, engage in that world that's so dark, you sort of need to understand that kind of um, side of human emotion a little bit. Um, And Gemma is sort of typical in that sense. She's very good at um, denial. She's very good at throwing herself into work. Um, And I think, frankly, we see a lot of that in fiction and film because it just makes makes for a better story than someone that's really um, binary. So, Sarah, if we imagine Gemma as coming from a line of police in crime fiction... Where would you, what sort of precedents would you put there? What what other characters are the books that you've loved? I think one of the first series that I really um, threw myself into as a sort of teenager was um, Patricia Cornwall's Kay Scarpetta books. Um, and I feel like even though um, Kay Scarpetta was a um, medical examiner as opposed to a detective, she certainly got very involved in her cases. She worked and for the FBI, didn't she? That's correct. Yeah, she was um, one of the coroners, the sort of head coroner in that world. I, I loved the way that um, her character developed over the course of those books. And you really got a sense of how her personal life um sort of injected itself into all of her cases and what was going on for her at the time. So I think I'm really drawn to those parallel stories that have a a crime to be solved and a personal story arc to be journeyed. And I feel like that certainly influenced sort of what I've ended up writing. What's another series that um, has had an impact on you? Um, I I really like The Godfather as well. That's one of my favourite books. By Um, Mario Puzo. Mario Puzo, yeah. And um, not so much because it's influenced my writing and and nor has it sort of influenced what I've written about from a crime perspective. I don't sort of write about the world of mafia. Um, But I really just love that complicated um, saga uh, style that he created and that sort of um, depth of character and the sprawling amount of characters. I'm not great at just having one or two characters in my fictional worlds. I really like to kind of create a whole cast. Um, So I'm sure that probably played a bit of a role as well. Are there Australian crime series 
that um, you would put on this imaginary bookshelf of yours? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I did read um, all of Peter Temple's books and, and liked them a lot. Um, for me, they were that kind of quieter crime um, that is slightly less overt, but all the same, you know, incredibly compelling. Um, and I am a huge fan of Jane Harper's books. I think she's, you know, really sort of reinvigorated the entire crime scene, which was very lucky timing for me. Um, but I, again, I really like the way she's got that strong premise from the get-go. You straight away, you know exactly what it is that you're trying to understand as a reader, what the what the premise and the, the crime is. Um, and then she weaves these incredible cast of characters around that story. So I think that, you know, unputdownable is certainly a word used to describe her books and I've, I've found them to be that for sure. Well, Jane Harper writes her way into small town Australia as you have in um, Where the Dead Go. Tell us about other books that sort of take you into regional Australia that have had an impact on you. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been lucky enough um, now to meet a lot of writers that are writing in the crime genre, um, and so it's been not only wonderful to read their books, but then to have the chance to talk to them about it as well. Um, I've read both of Mark Brandy's books, um, Wimmera and The Rip. Um, the Rip is uh, set in Melbourne in more of a sort of an urban city setting, but Wimmera was obviously a regional um, story and the way that that town was brought to life and that sort of suffocating feeling was very strong from from page one. Um, I also think that um, Tim Winton's um, breath was really strong in that sense too. It was a very kind of empty book in the sense that there wasn't huge amounts of action apart from the surfing scenes, but you really got that sense of that coastal community and that sort of isolation um, in those in those kids' worlds. So I think there's lots of books that um, I sort of feel the environment really plays a huge role in in the sort of way the story comes to life. I recently read a book called Islands by Peggy Frew, which is set partly on Phillip Island and partly in Melbourne. Um, and even though it wasn't exactly strictly a crime book, there, there is a missing girl um, story arc in it, but I just found the way that she painted those characters incredibly um, evocative and, and really brought those environments to life. What a powerful book and the way that it combined family secrets and stories and so on. But as yes. you say, at the heart of it, there's a missing girl. Yes. And that's what you have in Where the Dead Girl, a missing girl, a dead teenager, various possible suspects. The way that victims of crime are written about in crime fiction has changed, I guess, depending on, on who you're reading. Mm. When you think about... The, the victims of crime, what other books do that in an interesting way? I think the one that really called into question the whole depiction of victims was Emily Maguire's An Isolated Incident. I read that a couple of years ago and I really enjoyed it, which is, sort of sounds strange because it's, it's kind of a horrible premise um, in the sense that a, a woman's been murdered and it follows the investigation in the aftermath, but not from the typical detective police perspective, more from the the family that's left behind, her sister in particular. It was just a really gently navigated book. Um, it really sort of reimagined the way that victims are treated after their death. And it was kind of a quiet book, but I still found it really compelling. And I um, I certainly don't feel like I can write like that, but I really liked the way she sort of threw a different point of view and perspective on that genre. Because a quiet book, but quite a fierce political statement, really, about That's right. who is at the centre of crime fiction. 
Yeah, it's one of those things when you write crime. Um, I'm not very conscious when I'm writing. I don't really think too much about politically what I'm saying or not saying. I, I try to just write the story as, as best as it sort of feels it should be written. Um, but then when you have finished a book and you're questioned about it, you do sort of look back and think, oh, was that gratuitous? Was that appropriate? Um, I, I, it's hard. It's a hard question to answer. I suppose it's trying to work through what's appropriate and what your responsibility is. But I, I, I don't write politically, so I sort of feel like I just need to stick to the sort of the best story it can be. Except whenever you have a woman detective, um, a woman in a workplace, in the way that you have in your book, then the way that um, the woman detective is treated by those around her comes into it, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think you can't separate the two things. Um, but again, I don't even see that as being a political statement when I depict Gemma having to navigate uh, sexism or sort of unconscious bias in the workplace. I think it's just the way that it is and the way that the current um, climate still does tend to question women in those roles that are so typically masculine. It's just more trying to be realistic as opposed to making any kind of big statement. But it does come up a lot in terms of, I guess, people querying, you know, what I'm trying to say with the books. Linda LaPlante's um, creation of Jane Tennyson had such an impact on the way that women police were imagined in fiction. Are there other women detectives or, or just women in crime fiction that, um, that you would want to point to? Yeah, I think Jane Tennyson is such a great example. I was lucky enough to speak to Linda earlier this year. Isn't she um, a character? She is <laughs> eccentric and amazing. Um, but we had a good chat about Jane. And I think when you read those books that are set, you know, back in the 70s, the the sexism is so overt, you almost find pages where I, I struggled to read it. I just couldn't believe how bad it was. So it it does illustrate how far we've come. But, you know, having spoken to quite a lot of um, police officers, there is still a way to go. And it's very much personality based now. And I think some of the regional towns still have potentially sort of older male figures that have been there for a really long time. It's it's hard for them to reorient themselves to the new um, expectations and era and the fact that women, you know, are now equals in, their, in those roles. Um, but I do come back to Kay Scarpetta, the character in Patricia Cornwall's books. Um, she was in such a sort of strong position of power and yet still so regularly kind of questioned and challenged um, for being female. You know, when I read those, I was sort of 13, 14, 15. So it really did set up that um, bias and that sort of um, injustice that could take place even when you'd earned your role in a, in a position of power like that. Let's move away from characters and more to landscape, because one of the things that I kept thinking about when I read your latest novel, Where the Dead Go, is the place of the pub in Australian fiction. <laughs> yep. <laughs> are there other are there fictional pubs, real pubs? Well, I think pubs are really interesting and, as you say, kind of the heartbeat of a lot of Australian novels, whether it's crime or sort of more literary fiction. But it does tem it tends to be a place where people congregate and people go and people are happy to go solo, um, far more likely to find someone in a pub by themselves than in a restaurant by themselves. And the whole notion of a pub, I suppose, is to chat and unwind 
share stories, share gossip. So it's the perfect environment for crime fiction um, to sort of bring people together, especially sort of misplaced people that are operating in a solo way. Um, You know, I can think of quite a few crime books where um, the best conversations kind of happen at the pub or it's where the the lone detective has the opportunity to grill a suspect um, without it sort of being intended. Um, In my third book, Where the Dead Go, the pub is like literally the centre of the story. Um, Gemma stays there for a night and then it's certainly a meeting place sort of um, ongoing over the next few days. And I think it's just it's just an easy trick to bring people together. So, you know, if it was a stage play, it'd be it'd be one of the key sort of sets that you'd, that you'd have um, where a lot of the dialogue takes place. I love the way that fictional characters sometimes walk out of their books and into real pubs. Um, <laughs> I know that in Ian Rankin's stories of John Rebus, people go to see where Rebus drinks at that particular pub. And in Australia, Peter Corris's character Cliff Hardy still drinks at the Toxteth. England, yeah, surely. it's it's so evocative. I think um, you know when you when you're writing about a pub, you can really put people there because everyone has a pretty good point of reference, even if it's not exact. Um, the smells, the sounds, the way that sort of people congregate. I think it's a really um, it's a good leveler for for all storytelling. Sarah Bailey, what else do you think of when you think of Touchstone books, books that made you a reader or a writer? Um, there are so many, but I do think that I, I come back to a couple that I think really informed my love of character and having a really strong character to anchor a book. I loved Paulina Simmons's Tully when I was a bit younger. I loved um, Christos Solkas's The Slap. And I did read um, last year a book called Behind Her Eyes by Sarah Pinborough, who's a UK novelist, um, and it's a real thriller The thing about talking about books that are important to us is that usually as soon as you finish, you remember the the one you should have mentioned, the, you know, so this is is your chance. Um, Well, I do love The Great Gatsby and I know that it's quite um, a polarising book because some people hate it and some people love it. I tend to reread it every couple of years. I just think that, again, the characters are so incredibly memorable um, not necessarily likable, but, you know, distinctive. And the stakes are high in that book. So everyone's kind of coming at things from a slightly different angle, but within that amazing world um, that was created, I just really enjoy that book. I think it's got a lot of layers to it and I tend to sort of find something new every time I read it. Have you got other books like that, Those the ones that you go back to? Uh, I do. I'm, I'm certainly not um, adverse to rereading books that I've enjoyed, especially if it has been a while and I kind of knew I liked it, but I can't remember exactly what I liked about it. I've reread um, We Need to Talk About Kevin um, once since I read it the first time. So obviously, from a plot perspective, I knew what happened. So there was... Um, there was less suspense and tension, but again, I think structurally I was able to sort of read it in a more clinical way and appreciate um, all of the effort that it, that Lionel Shriver had gone into planning that book, which was obviously all based around structure and revealing slow pieces of the plot at a time. Um, so yeah, I definitely go back and, and read books and, um, you know, if I'm on holidays, um, I tend to sort of take something that I've read before that I know I've enjoyed. Um, but then also, you know, hopefully a couple of new books too. What are you reading at the moment? 
Um, well, I've just finished Ben Hobson's book Snake Island, which um, I think has been described as kind of a Australian western. It's another regional country town um, affair with um, multiple voices bringing the story to life and it's um, very much around redemption uh, and parents and children and the relationship they have um, as adults and that was great so I really enjoyed that. And uh, I've, I'm reading Adrian McKinty's book, The Chain, at the moment, which I think is doing quite well all around the world. He's an Australian author too. It's a bit more Hollywood. It's kind of like a big sort of sprawling plot and it's a very dramatic premise with um, children being kidnapped and then their parents being contacted and the ransom is that they then have to kidnap a child to have their child released. And very so different from Adrian's crazy. other books. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've only read one of his other books, but this has certainly kind of got that blockbuster feel to it, I suppose. So, yeah, I'm enjoying that too. But um, I read quite right, widely. I don't just read crime. I sort of enjoy all kinds of um, stories. I just like a really strong premise. Sarah Bailey, thank you so much for speaking to us on The Bookshelf. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Crime writer Sarah Bailey with Kate Evans on RN Summer. You're listening to The Bookshelf. to Anna Crean, Kate. Although I was talking, Cassie, about how much I like to read crime fiction at this time of year, this book, Act of Grace, isn't a conventional crime novel. It explores more crimes against humanity. It's a book about war, trauma and return. And I also asked her about the books that have influenced her, for her to share her bookshelf with us. But to understand those books, why don't we start with this new book of hers, Act of Grace? Anna Crean, thanks for speaking to us on The Bookshelf. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I'm going to start with the screamingly obvious question. So after years of long-form journalism, creative non-fiction, other types of writing, and your earlier books include Night Games and Into the Woods, mm. why fiction? <laughs> why fiction? Uh, well, fiction's always been my first love. Uh, and, you know, when I was learning my craft, I still am learning my craft, but when I was really emerging... I was doing both at the same time and then journalism took off and it uh, took the lead and as anyone who knows anything about journalism, the stories just don't stop. So the focus was truly on journalism and then I had two babies in very quick succession and I thought after the second, I just can't do journalism the way I like to do it, which is going on the road, disappearing for weeks at a time, not telling anyone where I am, that kind of thing. Uh, I just knew that that wasn't going to be possible with two babies. Uh, so I thought, what a great time to write a novel because babies are so easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and especially babies who don't sleep. Um, but I did. I did focus on the novel. I did start chipping away at it and it did take a while 
for I feel like my fiction muscle had gotten quite unfit and really out of out of sync with the rest of me. So it took about two years, I think, to really whip it into shape and for the novel to really start kicking off. And also, if people haven't read your non-fiction, hmm. um, I guess one of the things we should say about that is that it is clearly informed by fiction in that it's very writerly non-fiction yes. and it's long form. It's not a sort of conventional, it's not a news journalism style. No, yeah, no, it's not staccato uh, sort of inverted pyramid news style type writing. It can be quite lyrical and in my journalism I will be sure to include dialogue and um, have paint a portrait as much as I can. You know, when I was growing up, sort of my favourite books um, and uh, writers were always journalists as well as novelists. And it doesn't seem to be as much the case anymore, but I don't see that much of a difference between the two, um, which, you know, I could see my critics saying, see, see, she does write <laughs> fiction all the time, even when it's fact. Um, but I, I think the craft and the skills and the tools can be used to create pictures and I believe in work that reflects the time, whether it's fiction or non-fiction. The other thing that has been, I think, quite consistent in your work is that you've dealt with the really tough stuff, mm. violence and trauma and things that are quite confronting. Yes. So with that as a sort of background, let's talk about this novel of yours, Act of Grace. It's a novel full of violence and trauma mm. and war. So yes. why? What did you want to do with this? I never start out with a project, even if it's journalism or fiction, knowing what I want to do with it. I sort of It's an impulse and it becomes an obsession and it's usually because I want to understand something. Um, Act of Grace began with an obsession with the Iraq war and the more I became obsessed with the Iraq war, the more I realised that it was glaringly absent in Australian literature, that it sort of had been omitted um, from from my history books um, and curriculums and considering it's been Australia's longest war for really uh, precarious reasons that we even went into Iraq, I felt consumed with trying to bring it into life in another way and not sort of adding to the amnesia that we weren't in Iraq. I, sometimes I think about if we were to excavate uh, literature, uh, modern literature right now, um, how much of it would reflect our lives and, you know, if future archaeologists would try to make links between our literature and our lives, what kind of links would they make? If we just stick with that idea of what it is that fiction can do, mm. and you were saying that you felt that the Iraq war is absent from Australian fiction, mm. but... Are there other novels that you came across or approaches that have either inspired you or that have dealt with something like the Iraq War that you've read? Yeah. I mean, it's not to say that I don't love escapist fiction or um, fantasy or sci-fi. And I mean, I'm a great love of all of us is Margaret Atwood and her recent novel, The Testaments, could 
be considered to be futuristic or historical. It could be anything and it's very familiar and you can see it reflected in the times. I mean, I am just, well, Christos Tolkis, I love his work. Um, I can see his work. I can see the people. I know them. Um, I sit next to them on the train. I hear their dialogue. I love that he can do nuance and he can do class. And I really think that class is neglected, not just in Australian literature, but in observations about society. Um, There's a lot of talk about intersectionality at the moment, and it seems to be mostly based around sexuality and diversity and ethnicity. But I think class is a major, a major ballgame here, and we're not paying enough attention to it. I guess I love, I mean, Naomi Alderman's The Power was just such an incredible book to read. It took a modern conversation about gender and power and flipped it to such an extraordinary world. And it was vivid and visceral and incredibly relevant, even though it was not our world. There has been quite a lot of interesting fiction that deals with both war and trauma. Mm. Is there stuff that you read there that has made an impact on you? Well, I mostly just read the uh, war reporters of and dispatches from Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, Paul McGough, an Australian reporter, wrote some fantastic books on Afghanistan and Iraq. The New Yorker's John Lee Anderson um, did fantastic dispatches from, from that point in time. I found when it came to Australian literature about war, there's an incredible amount, obviously, about World War One and World War Two. Tiny bit about Vietnam War, but it starts to peter out. I guess, and maybe that's because it's now our turn to to take up the reins and tell our stories of of today. But yeah, I really did. I really don't feel like I've seen Afghanistan or Iraq in our literature. Simon Cleary's The War Artist, okay. which is quite a recent one. So okay, I right. I'm going to write one. that down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and Andrew O'Hagan, the English writer, mm. The Illuminations, does a very interesting story of um, Afghanistan, soldiers returning from Afghanistan and the trauma they experienced. And interestingly, he also approached that as somebody who does journalism and long-form journalism and yeah. interviewed um, soldiers as well. But you mentioned earlier that you've always been drawn to those people who have a background in journalism and who also write fiction. Mm. So who else, who are you thinking of there? Oh, well, I'm thinking more of when you grow, um, grow, you grow up and you're a young reader and you like writing, but you, to tell you the truth, you have no idea if you're going to pull it off um, and you could just as easily become, you know, something else, or have another occupation. Um so, you know, there was Albert Camus and there was uh, Salman Rushdie and there, uh, who else was Tom Wolfe and, you know, American writers, uh, Mark Twain and all those kind of, uh, I think I love American storytellers and, and a lot of them were journalists at the same time. Um, Marquez, Gabrielle Marcia Marquez. And I really feel that, um, yeah, I mean, I've always had, whenever I've been immersed in the news or immersed in a topic of journalism, there's always something in my head that going, wow, you could really capture this in a different way completely as a fiction writer. 
and I've always, so I have massive scrapbooks in my, and I've got all these newspaper clippings and they could just as easily become a journalism project or a fiction project. What other books would you think of if you're thinking of those that really shaped you as either as a writer or just as a reader? Hmm. You know, I got asked this once a long time ago and I, I really think your formative your formative years, your teens, are such important years in reading. And Robin Klein comes to mind. I just I remember reading her book, People Might Hear You. Did you ever read that? Oh, it was and it was based on a real story. Maybe that's sort of why I was so struck by it and why I've become the person I the writer I am, is that it was this incredible work of fiction for young readers. It was so real. It was clearly meticulously researched. It was based on a true story of these two girls, um, not this one girl and her mum slowly being drawn into a strange cult. And it was so real and striking and it took my breath away. And I think I was probably... 12 when I read that. That's also such an interesting time of reading. Yes. Because you can allow yourself to be completely absorbed yep. in a way that's increasingly hard, hard as you get older. So much harder. Yeah. Yeah. Someone was telling me there's a Japanese word for um, the stockpile of books beside your bed. <laughs> there's a word for it for the, all those books you just haven't got time to read. And that's kind of the state that I think a lot of us are now in. But when you're a child or a teenager, I mean, that was my favourite place to go to the library and, and to disappear into these worlds. What else have you read recently that you've, you've enjoyed? Ocean Vuong's uh, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. I was so vivid um, and so visceral and, again, it was real, but with this poetry and lyricism in, in the way he writes, uh, there was that one quote that I can't stop thinking about, whereas... He writes, an American boy is a boy in a cage. An American boy with a gun is a boy walking to the other side of his cage. And just this incredible insight into masculinity, into American masculinity. Uh, and then there was that incredible scene where his mum, who works in a, a pedicure nail salon, uh, and the customer comes in, she only has one leg. But she asks really tentatively, if she could get that phantom leg to be massaged. And so there's this incredibly beautiful scene of his mum massaging the air, basically, and the woman reacting and feeling the relief of her phantom limb being comforted. And oddly, he, he also knows how to make those moments into stories about class as well, That's class right. and work yeah. and being a Vietnamese family in America mm. and being a gay young man yeah, as well. That's and he right. manages to incorporate it all, doesn't he? And also, um, you know, really re relevant news reporting. It's like this work of art. It's a poetry, it's memoir, but it's also journalism. He writes about the opioid crisis in America, the prescription crisis in America, and suddenly you realise you're reading something that's completely and utterly newsworthy as well as being uh, a bliss to read. What are you reading now? Um, Christos Dokkas, <laughs> <laughs> Dead Europe. 
Um, I have that's the one I haven't read. The one I haven't read. So I thought it was time. I heard him being interviewed by Jonathan Green, uh, and I was like, oh wow, that's I can't believe I haven't read that one. Is there anything else that we've we've missed? Um, it's a classic, uh, and it's almost predictable. But Joseph Heller's Catch Twenty Two, it's one of my favourite novels of all time. I also really like the fact that it took me years to come to it. There were a few times when I tried it and I just wasn't ready for it. I didn't get it. I didn't have the experience and the time to be able to understand the story. And then suddenly I picked it up in my late 20s and I was right in. And it taught me a lot about reading that you have to change and keep changing and keep transforming in order to be able to respond to different works of literature. I mean, I remember when I was young trying to read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness and I was like, I have no idea what is going on. Like, no idea. It was like I couldn't even thread the words in a single sentence together. It just made no sense to me. And it took me 10 years to return to it and go, oh, I'm ready for it now. I get it. And I just, it just taught me a lot about reading that, you know, you can't be too dismissive of a work because you might just not be ready for it. Anna Crean, thank you so much for speaking to us on thank the bookshelf. You so much for having me. Anna Crean's latest book and first novel is Act of Grace. She's also written long-form journalism and non-fiction, including Night Games and Into the Woods. So that's an awful lot of book recommendations that we've heard today in one program. So remember, we do list all the books each week on the Bookshelf website at abc.net.au slash rn. And while you're there, why don't you have a look through the whole last year or so when you decide what to read next? Yes, you can browse through our digital audio aisles for free. Next week, Gothic Reading Kate and more.